0: Bible's with you, please turn to Luke chapter 7. Never once in my life have I challenged June Leach to an arm wrestling match. Well, usually once a week, me and Carmine and little Theodore Graham will beat Bob in an arm wrestling match, but we don't, you know, challenge June, but that's fine. That's fine. Our text this morning is really one unit with one theme divided into four sections in there's John's question and Jesus' answer in seven, eighteen to twenty three. The witness of Jesus about John in twenty four to twenty-eight, the people who accept and reject God's plan of salvation in verses twenty nine and thirty, and finally the judgment of Jesus upon those who reject God's plan in verses thirty-one to thirty-five. So to sum that up, these four segments describe for us the relation of John the Baptist and Jesus to the execution of God's plan of salvation. And then the reaction of John's disciples and Jesus' own generation to him. When the religious elite in Israel found out that it was tax collectors and sinners that were receiving the so-called, or the word of this so-called Messiah, they rejected him. They wanted nothing to do with him, even though he really was the Messiah, which betrays a deep evil lying in the human heart, a glitch in our nature that has to be removed by God's hands if we are To receive Him. We want to be able to determine who is worthy of God's salvation by our own standards. And we will usually find ourselves in the plus column rather than the negative. But God's wisdom is vindicated in who He saves. God's wisdom. Not ours. We must die to our desire to be thought of highly in God's eyes for what we do And surrender to the fact that we need His mercy for every ounce of our salvation. Both the forgiveness that washes away all our sin and guilt. And the righteousness that makes us holy before God. We will not be able to produce any of this. Either of them. The children of wisdom in the Bible are all those who are willing to accept God's righteous plan as it is manifested in the ministries of John the Baptist and Jesus, including, maybe most importantly, Jesus is eating and drinking as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So let me pray. Father, I thank You for this passage. I thank You, Lord, for the consistency of Your Word. That it is constant that the text always stands over us, always shaping us, always Your Word, authoritative, inspired, inerrant, infallible. Lord, may we hear it and receive it as that this morning. May I preach it as that this morning. Please help me, God. I cannot do this. I cannot do this if you do not fill me for it. I pray and ask these things that I would be able to preach, that all would be able to hear in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Verse 18 here of chapter 7. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he restored sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, And the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Back in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, John the Baptist, this one in this text, had proclaimed that one who was mightier than he was coming, and that he was not even worthy to untie his sandals. He prophesied that Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire, that his winnowing fork was in his hand. And he would clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn and burn the chaff with unquenchable fire, all in fulfillment of Malachi chapter three, verse two. But now that prophet that proclaimed all that is sitting in a dungeon at Macharas, about five miles east of the Dead Sea, according to the Jewish historian Josephus. He's been imprisoned there by Herod. Rotting away in prison doesn't really stimulate optimism, right? It's not going to necessarily strengthen your faith. So when John the Baptist gets word from some of his disciples about what Jesus has been doing, most recently, the healing in seven verses one to ten, and then the resurrection of the widow's son in verses eleven through seventeen, he has doubts. As he hears that news, he has doubts that Jesus is the one. It doesn't seem like Jesus is really burning up the chaff, so to speak the progress and manner of Jesus' ministry has not been what John the Baptist expected if he truly was the coming one. So he sends two of his disciples back to Jesus in verse 19 to ask Him straight out, are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for another? John the Baptist is saying, did I get it wrong that you were the coming one? Sometimes it doesn't look like Jesus is keeping His promises. But John's two disciples popped their question when Jesus was healing people of various diseases and freeing them of evil spirits in verse 21. So Jesus, alluding both to the things he is doing and Old Testament texts like Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, gave them his answer. Look back down if you would to verse 22. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As Isaiah 35 prophesies, the miracles that Jesus is now doing describe the time, in fact, when God has come to deliver his people. They are the signs of the age of Zion's restoration. But very interestingly, Jesus doesn't cite the full Isaiah text, he leaves out the things they say about judgment and vengeance coming with the Lord. And by doing so, he's speaking directly to the confusion of John the Baptist. Jesus came this first time in solidarity with sinners and will bear in himself the vengeance and wrath of God against his enemies, including our sin. This is why his ministry is filled with miracles of forgiveness and release for those who are in bondage because that's the first phase of his coming. John the Baptist didn't understand that the judgment aspect of Jesus' work, fully fulfilled, simply hadn't happened yet. It didn't mean it wasn't going to happen. It means it hasn't happened yet. That's what was very difficult for those who were looking in Israel to see is that from God's perspective, there was... Time that was going to be spent for all of this to be fulfilled. They were thinking it would happen all at once. It's as if Jesus was saying to John the Baptist, tell him that, John, the evidences of Isaiah 35 are already occurring, even though the Romans are ruling the land and the scribes and Pharisees are meddling in everything and you're rotting away in Herod's prison. The age of restoration has already begun. You you need to see that in these things that I am doing. That it started. It's here. Not all of it has come, but it's here. It's beginning. Blessed is the one then who sees that Jesus is the one who has come the first time, mainly to bring compassion and mercy and forgiveness. And beloved, you and I need to hear the words of Jesus for ourselves in this passage. Do not be surprised if you are confused and perplexed sometimes about Jesus. And what Jesus is doing in this world and even more so in our own lives. Don't be surprised when it doesn't automatically make tons of sense. Often our concerns will be very much like the ones John the Baptist had. Why isn't Jesus working in the way I imagined he would? Why doesn't he meet my expectations of what a Messiah would be? Why does he take so long to deliver from the things I'm currently going through? Why doesn't he do more to set things right and put an end to injustice finally and completely and all these types of things? When we struggle and question like this, let us go back to the Word of God and remember what Jesus said and remember what comes with, mainly comes with, his first coming, which we are still living in light of. The point of his first coming was not to condemn the world and bring everyone and everything to justice. And those who have faith in Him and hitch themselves to His wagon will struggle as the poor in spirit in a world where they're not welcome. A world that is cursed and fallen and dying in which we're aliens and strangers and sojourners. Jesus upset the natural order. But the first coming was just that. The first coming. There is a second. There will be a second. He will return and bring the fullness of the fulfillment of all God's promises once and for all. Verse 24. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, about John the Baptist. What had they expected when they went out to listen to John the Baptist? A reed, shaken by the wind, a, some timid, soft little man? Does the man we read about back in 3.7 and 3.19 seem like that? The one who called the Pharisees a brood of vipers and reproved Herod Antipas for his sins? Or did they expect to see some rich elitist with his nice threads living the soft life? No, they went out to see a prophet. What do prophets do? What should they have expected from John the Baptist? Prophets are sent by God to proclaim the word he has given to them. But the thing about John the Baptist, out of all the prophets, he's not just any prophet. He was the hinge between the phases of salvation history. That task fell to this prophet, John the Baptist. He was the prophet designated to announce the coming of the Lord that was prophesied in Malachi 3.1, which is what Jesus is quoting here in verse 27. The period of Old Testament Israel concludes with the ministry of John the Baptist, and the new era of Jesus commences with the preaching of John the Baptist. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets, but he is the greatest prophet of them all, and that he announces the new era of salvation that we've been talking about all along. It's here. It's come. In Christ. He's among us. In Malachi 3, the prophet was quoting there or addressing the griping and the accusations of the unbelievers in Israel. They demanded to know where the God of justice was back in Malachi 2, 17. God's not keeping his word. God's not doing what God said he would do. That's what Malachi is responding to in chapter 3, verse 1 of Malachi. You want, he's saying. You want the God of justice? You'll have Him. By way of His messenger, who comes to prepare the way for Him. John the Baptist was the forerunner who would purify and separate Israel into those who will receive the coming one and those who will not. He is the hinge of redemptive history between the old age and the new. In this word of Jesus about John here, Luke, for his gospel's sake introduces and gives Old Testament support for the other or the second phase of the doctrine he's teaching about Jesus, and that's the rejection of the Messiah that will come especially at the end of his journey or in fullness at the end of his life. And that sets the stage in the immediate context for when the people of this generation reject the children of God's wisdom, the ones that prove God is just and wise. John the Baptist And Jesus, the ones that do that in a place like Israel, they'll be rejected, which is proof that they are the ones sent from God. The wondrous deeds of Jesus are the first phase of the answer to John the Baptist. But then John the Baptist and everyone else is invited to recognize that since John prepared the way for the messianic new era, rejection is fundamental to both his ministry. He shouldn't be surprised he's in prison. And the ministry of the Messiah. The rejection of Jesus is also a sign that the new age has come. This was prophesied as well. John John for his part, his present imprisonment and coming martyrdom testified to this fact. He probably realized that his imprisonment would end in death and he's struggling to reconcile that with Jesus' promise. remember that he would set free those who are in bondage back in chapter four. Jesus didn't you say you were going to do that? How am I in prison? I'm probably going to die here. Are are you the one? Or should I look for another? But John enjoys an unparalleled privilege in all this. The first part of verse 28. Jesus Christ said, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. John the Baptist. Really? Greater than Noah and Abraham and David? Apparently so, beloved. Because he was so great. No, because of where he was on the clock. Where he was in the story. His task. From the beginning of the world to the moment of Jesus' miraculous conception in Mary's womb, no one was greater than this prophet that acts as the hinge between these two ages, old and new. To be the one that proclaims salvation has arrived is an unparalleled role in human history. But then Jesus says something else. Look at the second part of verse 28. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God that Jesus brings, that era is greater than John the Baptist. So the least of those who are born again in Christ Jesus is greater even than John. Again, it's proximity to Jesus. Geertz writes, With the kingdom of God comes something that really could never be found before on earth. It is a matter of a new world with a new relationship between man and God. In the old world, all are born of women. In the new, they are also born of God and born again. How this could happen already now within the framework of the old world before God makes all things new, this was one of the problems that the disciples would ponder and not begin to seriously understand before the resurrection. And many, most, would struggle to embrace Jesus right along with those who misunderstood for that reason. Verse 29. Parenthetically, Luke writes, when all the people heard this, what Jesus said about John the Baptist, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by Him, by john the baptist so now that jesus had revealed that john the baptist was the hinge between two ages sent by god as his prophet jesus just divided israel into two camps the question that remains then is so what side are you on that's what jesus is doing here what side are you on who are the opponents of jesus and his followers because they are the opponents of god's way and god's wisdom the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the purpose of God in their rejection of John the Baptist, while all the people and tax collectors, too, declared God just by receiving the baptism of John to prepare the way for the Lord. For Israel, the ministry of John the Baptist then is, or was the litmus test that distinguishes between those who are now accepting and those who are now rejecting God's plan of salvation in Jesus, whose way John prepared. Those who accept Him see God's salvation in Jesus breaking into the world. Among the people, the tax collectors in particular here. You see that in the text. Among the people that are receiving Jesus, the tax collectors in particular represent in an extremely unique way and powerful way sinners who accept the forgiveness that Jesus is bringing. The worst. Those considered the worst are models of the spiritually poor throughout the Gospel of Luke. He's adamant to show this again and again and again. It's it's the tax collectors, it's the worst of society, as the religious elite see it, that act as receptive beggars to Jesus. To accept Jesus, then, was to declare God to be righteous and wise and just, and to declare that God is righteous, that God is just, that God is the truth is to proclaim at the same time that every human is false and does not know the way of salvation and has not cornered the market on God's wisdom. To receive Christ is to receive God's plan of salvation as it was manifested for them in the baptism of John, the baptism of repentance. Their submission to that is their confession that God is just or righteous and that God justifies the sinner by grace Alone. On the other hand, you see in 29 and 30, those who attempt justification by works of the law, like the Pharisees and the scribes, deny by doing that that God is just. And so they are not justified. The refusal of the Pharisees to accept John the Baptist's baptism is a refusal to repent of their sins and be forgiven. They deny that such a baptism is something they need if you were really on God's side, you wouldn't be taking the baptism of this John the Baptist character. And you wouldn't be receiving this Jesus as the alleged Messiah. We're the ones that know God's wisdom. We're the ones that know how the plan is working out. You need to trust and follow us. We don't go with all that. So verses 29 and 30 distinguishes clearly between those who receive God's gift in John and Jesus and those who reject it. The debate that's growing here around Jesus and His opponents, it's a Christological debate. It has to do, that is, with the theology about Jesus that revolves around God's plan of salvation through the message of John the Baptist and Jesus. Verse 31. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children. Sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Who is really on the side of God is seen by who accepts what God has said in John the Baptist and Jesus. So, we reach the goal of the theme of this section, which is the vindication of God's plan in John the Baptist and in Jesus. This generation, those words as Jesus calls them here, He calls them evil. This generation in chapter 11, verse 29, Imagine being a Pharisee and being called evil when you thought you were the epitome of the opposite. Calls this generation unrepentant in 1132. Tells them they're responsible for the shed blood of all the prophets in 1150. This generation. In 941, Jesus calls them an unbelieving and adulterous generation. All these declarations by Jesus epitomize The response to John the Baptist and Jesus by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the elders, lawyers, and scribes. The foremost men, if you will, of Israel, as Jesus calls them in 1947. The elite, the best of the best, the most mature spiritually, they're evil, they're adulterous, they're wicked, they're fools, they're children. They're the children sitting in the marketplace. The religious leaders of Israel here in verse 32 that reject the message of John the Baptist and Jesus, who are demanding that for them to accept John the Baptist and Jesus, then they need to act a certain way. You want our approval? You need to act a certain way. You need to act in the way that we say someone sent from God would act. Or we're not going to accept you. And notice how Jesus indicts them here. Because neither ascetic John the Baptist nor joyful Jesus will satisfy them. As Dale Ralph Ralph Davis says, John the Baptist is too weird, and Jesus is too wild. John and his disciples, they fast. They refuse certain foods and drinks. And they say, he has a demon. But then Jesus does the opposite. He eats and drinks at table with sinners and tax collectors. And what do they call him? A glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. They can't be happy at a wedding. They can't be sad at a funeral. Jesus is saying that the way unbelief is in Israel, nothing satisfies it. They are epitomizing what it looks like in the world to reject God's wisdom that is revealed in Christ. They epitomize it. No matter what approach God takes in proclaiming His Word to them, an ascetic prophet, a joyful teacher who parties with Tax collectors and sinners, they reject that too. They they won't accept any of it. They'll find something wrong with however, whatever vessel God uses to proclaim His Word to them. The problem's not in the vessels of proclamation, it's in them. When nothing makes a person happy, it's it's them. It's them. It's them. No matter how God speaks to His people, unbelief is not satisfied. The men of this generation reveal the child's characteristic of insisting on their own way. That's what children do. And beloved, there's no cure for that. Not then and not now. Unless God grants us a different disposition. Towards the word of His Son. There's so much evidence that Jesus is the one sent from God. If we were just to look at chapter seven, verses one through seventeen, verses twenty-one and twenty-two, that denying the claims He makes that He is the one, that's rebellious, stubborn, foolishness. You, it's childish. You'd have to be willfully blind, willfully deaf, willfully lame, willfully ignorant to say, I don't, I don't think it's you, I don't think he's the one. You know, it's it's like later on. It's kind of, I mean, I'm dramatizing it a little bit, but when Jesus is being lifted back up into heaven at the ascension, some rejoice, the text says, and some doubted. Really? He's rising up with the clouds and the angels, and you're like, "Uh, I don't know. I don't know if he's the one or not. I don't know how I feel about that. Right. That rejection of Jesus, in light of all the evidence, it reveals that what people want from God is driven mainly by what they want for themselves, not what they need. Israel said they wanted God to speak to them, right? They wanted that. They wanted to receive their Messiah. They wanted to receive God's salvation. So he sent them, John the Baptist, to proclaim, listen, it's all about to happen. Get yourselves ready. Baptize with the baptism of repentance. Prepare your heart. Get ready to receive the Lord. The Messiah is going to come. There's going to be release and forgiveness and righteousness and victory. Just repent and get ready. No, no, no. We're not going to do that. No, we don't want him to come like that. But what, why did they reject John the Baptist and Jesus? The answer is found, according to this text, in who Jesus welcomed to His side, into His circle. Here it's revealed, that's why they're rejecting Him. They wanted to use, why? Why would they reject Jesus because He accepts tax collectors? Notice Luke calls that out. So, we'll just use them. Why would... The, the the religious elite reject Jesus because He was a friend of tax collectors. Just their friend. Just associated with them. And they repent and are welcomed in. Because that says something about how a person gets saved and they don't like it. They wanted to use their worship, their obedience as some kind of currency. Thinking, if I do everything right... God will not only accept me, He will recognize me for what I've done. They wanted the Messiah to recognize them for their work. That That's going to come out as clear as day later in Luke, particularly in Luke 15. We've been faithful and done everything right all this time. Why aren't you recognizing us? Why are you their friend and not our friend? Why are you a friend of tax collectors and drunks and gluttons and then to just... Make it unbelievable to them. Just shocking to them. Next week, a prostitute's also. Verses 36 through 50. Surely, Jesus wouldn't go there. Oh, of course Jesus goes there. We're the ones that have Not Jesus. If we genuinely knew how badly we needed God to reach down and save us, we wouldn't be so foolish as to get mad over who else His hands pull in also. That's how fools think. The children of wisdom in Luke 7 are John the Baptist, Jesus, and all His disciples. Wisdom in this text, by the way, is a synonym for the plan of God. The rightness of that plan is a part of wisdom personified. The plan of God in Jesus will be acknowledged by wisdom's children as just because of Jesus' accomplishment of the world's salvation. And Jesus himself will be vindicated as truthful and wise in his resurrection from the dead. God will not let him stay in the grave like the rest of us have to do until the return of Christ. God the Father will himself will declare his son to be in the right And therefore, all of Jesus' followers will acknowledge the rightness of God's verdict in Christ. The focus here in Luke is on the rejection of God's prophets at the end of the age. That first age that was ending in John the Baptist. What's the ultimate response of Israel to God is seen in the ministry of John the Baptist. They said, no, we don't want what you're giving. Jesus will later say, your house is forsaken. I'm done. But Paul will go on to explain who the promises were actually for them, because now it seems they're all just left hanging. No, they're not. No, they're not. The prophets at the end of the age, like John the Baptist, or the prophet, comes preaching a message that is contrary to the message of the Pharisees. And how they teach you get accepted by God and align yourself with God's wisdom. And what makes a person wise rather than foolish. Jesus already said earlier about the wine and the wineskins and it's, It's two different systems. They don't go together. They can't or you'll destroy both. So the prophet's message is scandalous and unpopular. The children of wisdom, however, are all those who are willing to accept God's righteous plan as it is manifested in the ministries of John the Baptist and Jesus, including the fact, especially in the fact of Jesus is eating and drinking as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's where he would be. That's who salvation is for. Not those who think they deserve it, but those who know they don't. And a Christian who's maturing is realizing over time, not that they're becoming something God doesn't necessarily have to forgive as much. And like Paul, by the end of their lives, they're saying, I'm the chief of sinners. That's maturity. That's maturity. Not believing that you're getting so good and so great and so improved and you look at that and you even credit God for it as the the Pharisee will do later in Jesus' parable. I thank you, God, that I'm not like all these other schmucks. That's not how a person that's justified prays. I thank you that I'm not like that. No, you beat your breast. You say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's maturity. I can't believe what you forgive. I can't believe that you would accept me when after all this time I'm still sinning, still struggling, still doubting, still afraid. That magnifies God's wisdom when we proclaim, why would you save me? I don't have anything. That's what, that's the posture the Pharisees hated Jesus for. Because when Jesus saw that, he moved close. When Jesus saw people that had nothing to give to him, he moved close. It wasn't that Jesus didn't love Pharisees. It's not it. It's that they didn't want to eat with him if he was going to eat with them. Arthur just writes, the children of wisdom turn out to be the most unlikely folk and the most unpopular members of Palestinian society, tax collectors and sinners. For the Pharisees and the other religious authorities, the inclusion, this inclusion of sinners in God's plan of salvation, especially in those who Jesus chose to eat with, that's the great scandal. That's the core of their problem. And so the coming of the new era in John and Jesus, it's hidden from them. They can't see it. That's why Luke specifically calls out the fact that the tax collectors receive Jesus. If salvation is going to be so free that people we don't think deserve it can get it, then we don't want you as our Savior. We don't want to look like them, that that we're a part of who God accepts. Well, who does God accept? Tax collectors and sinners. No, then no thank you. We want someone who will recognize achievement, not someone who will give it out for free to the undeserving poor. There's another quote here I had. It's so good from Bo He writes, Before God, men can be like obstinate and mischievous children for whom nothing anyone suggests or tries with them is suitable. The problem is with them. So John did not suit them with his strict self-denial and neither did Jesus with his openness to God's good gifts. It didn't matter if you follow the letter of the law like John did or if you seemed To loosen it, which Jesus never did, but that's what it looked like because they were so blind. It doesn't matter. It's that, it's, He's saving sinners. Real sinners. Not that just, oh no, nobody's perfect. No, people that will give you a list of why they're not perfect. So John did not suit them with his strict self-denial and neither did Jesus with his openness to God's good gifts. In both cases, The listeners sensed the presence of God, a love that grabbed at them and wanted to possess them completely, but they did not want to be gripped by this and they would not admit it. So their excuses and critiques became quite contradictory and illogical. Again, it is necessary to acknowledge that God is right. Wisdom is justified by all her children. Wisdom is God's wisdom that the Old Testament speaks of with words that are sometimes reminiscent of Christ. It is God's plan of salvation and will to save through Christ who completely controls and guides the course of this world to its goal. Now here, wisdom has come to earth and she is justified by some. Thereby, they show that they are of the truth and do what is true as John expresses the matter. So they come to the light. Beloved, all of you, will you come to the light? Unbeliever, will you receive Christ? Will you declare that God is just by agreeing with Him that you can do nothing to earn or to keep your salvation? That is to be a child of wisdom, of God's plan. Will you agree with Him that we are all the undeserving poor? no matter what we have to bring to the table. And God is keeping all His promises in total by welcoming in those who have nothing to offer. That's who all this had been for all along. Or do you begrudge God a little bit for His mercy? Christian or no, do you you have an issue with who Jesus welcomes? Does it bother you that you could do your best and try as hard as you can and God will not accept you any more or less than the one who has made a mockery of God her whole life, who has sinned the worst of sins his whole life? Does that bother you? You say it just doesn't seem fair. Again, don't ever say, God, be fair. Don't ever say it. For God to be fair and give us what we all deserve means hell is full and heaven is empty. So don't. Just don't. Don't stand outside the feast where Jesus is serving. Don't stand outside sulking. Don't. Come into the feast. You're invited. Come in. Jesus will give you what to wear. Don't try to bring your own stuff you don't need to bring a dish covered or not just come he'll dress you he'll serve you just come are you his child a child of wisdom he's he's done all the work here receive the gift you're forgiven receive it come to Jesus